Welcome to Chicagoland Parenting Stories. I am your host, Lisa Zimmerman. Let's get started with today's parenting story. Welcome back to the next episode of Chicagoland Parenting Stories. My guest today is Gillian Taylor. Gillian is owner of Citrine and Indigo Counseling and Wellness. She is a licensed clinical professional counselor, and her private practice is located in Glen Ellen. Welcome, Gillian. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Would you go ahead and state the ages and, if you're comfortable with it, the names of your children? Yes. So this is, we'll dive right in with a complicated question. I have a four and a half year old. His name is Vaughn. Actually, he'll be five in January. Um, But I am a perinatal patient also, IVF, um, perinatal loss. That's kind of how I um, found this niche in the field. But I lost twins at um, 19 weeks of gestation. I I had premature labor. So those children, I had two little boys, their names are... um, Chapin and Bradbury. I'm so sorry for you. And then I'm 33 weeks along. Oh, thank you. Thank you. So this is your rainbow baby. Yes. Yes. Okay. Well, I'm so sorry to hear that. That's Uh, okay. Thank you. We heal, right? (laughs) We do. We do. Um, I also have had some perinatal losses too um, that I wasn't expecting and actually really planning for or possibly didn't even really want at that point. It was after 40, you know, when you start going through perimenopause and your body starts throwing eggs, like it's, you know, the end of the world. (laughs) Um, But, you know, it does stick with you quite a bit. Well, thank you for sharing that. I'm sorry for your losses. If you had to describe your parenting style, what would it be? Ooh, okay. So I think I am on the gentle and empowering parenting trend. But if I'm being real, like it's sprinkled with losing my temper every now and then. <laughs> try to be gentle, try to give choices, um, but I lose it. I lose it every now and then. Try not to yell, um, do a lot of timeouts, but such is the nature of parenting. Have you noticed that like with being pregnant now, like your your fuse is a little shorter? My fuse is a lot shorter. I don't know if there is a fuse. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Okay. Without disclosing your age, which generation are you a part of? Okay. I stand by this firmly, and I know this is also a divisive answer, but I feel there is a mini generation called Generation Y. It's like 78 to 85, and I fall right in there proudly. Um, But I've been told over and over again that I'm actually an elder millennial, which doesn't sound as cool at all. Um, Yeah, who wants to be called an elder anything? (laughs) Exactly. Generation Y forever. You know, it's so funny because somebody brought that up and I was like, oh yeah, what happened to Generation Y? Because I remember it came after Generation X and uh, yeah, (laughs) yeah, it's tricky. We're still here, quiet and mighty. Exactly. Right. So as a generation, why uh, would you describe how you were parented as similar or different than how you're parenting your son? I would say um, somewhat similarly because, and I don't know if that's generational or if it's because my mother um, has her specialty in early childhood education. So Mm. um, parenting really young kids is something I learned from her. And I I remember a lot about it. Um, I recognize that during that generation, we were all praise junkies. We did a lot of things to earn 
um, praise and approval. And I'm trying to be mindful of that in my parenting style because I don't want my son to just, um, you know, be searching for external um, validation. But, but it's something that we have to unlearn, I think, as well. So, but there is a lot of like choice making and empowerment. And my mom was pretty, um, I think, on the cutting edge of that kind of thing when I was growing up. Hmm. That is pretty interesting. Cause when I think about that, that certainly was not how I was parented at all. So we are a slightly different generation. And for my son, I mean, you know, we're definitely giving him praise, but typically it's like when he doesn't expect it, like, oh, you got X and Y thing happened. Like we got an email from your teacher saying that you're just amazing. Oh, well, we're going to go out to dinner and celebrate, you know, those kinds of things. So I mean, we definitely recognize when he's done well, but I don't think that there's ever like any type of a thing that he's actually waiting for. But, you know, a lot of that just could be his personality too. It just depends Mm -hmm. on the kiddo. Mm -hmm. I find that, yeah, absolutely. I find that um, I try to stay away from saying things like good job or, um, or instilling my own value system upon him. But I try, try in, in quotation marks to say like, you completed that thing. How does that make you feel? And try to extract some kind of value system of his so he can kind of land on um, connecting his emotions to a behavior. This is why I love talking to therapists. You all rock. Uh, Can you describe the work that you do (laughs) for those that may not understand how you help new families? Yeah, for sure. So I am a perinatal um, psychotherapist, um, clinical therapist, counselor, any one of the above. Um, and I, I work with people within the perinatal period and actually prior to. So the perinatal period is technically from conception through one year of life. However, my own journey has given me a ton of experience in the infertility world. And so I, I also counsel couples and individuals who are going through assisted reproductive technology. I always say it's, you know, despite what they tell us in high school, it's hard to get pregnant. It's hard to stay pregnant. It's hard to give birth and it's really hard to bring a baby home. So that's kind of my niche right now, though, um, prior to this this specialty area. I've worked in a lot of different higher levels of care, um, which I think has really helped me having not, I don't have a background as a social worker, but it has really helped me understand the entire umbrella of the mental health field and what, um, what resources exist that I can help people plug into. So from a systems perspective, what is out there that people can utilize like lactation, right? And how can we access it? And is it, does it have to mean going to the hospital or can people come out to you? And, you know, how do we advocate for ourselves with doctors and, and other providers? So that's what I'm doing right now. And I work in outpatient private practice, which means I see my clients for individual therapy once a week, maybe once every two weeks, sometimes for maintenance once a month. Okay. What is your favorite thing about the work you do? Seeing clients for sure. So I'm an extrovert, so um, I can see a lot of clients in a row, and I really enjoy that, and I feel very energized at the end of the day. Um, It's when I have to do notes or or ancillary, you know, admin tasks that I feel really tired. And I'm somewhat of a didactic practitioner, which means I like to teach from a um, psycho-educational perspective because I feel like knowledge is power, and people can make informed decisions when they know what they're making decisions about. That sounds great. Did you always want to be a parent? 
Yes. I always wanted to be a parent. However, I think I took a left turn in my 20s when, you know, there was lots of different non-parental rites of passage that I <laughs> felt I needed to find out. Um, but it was always a goal in the back of my head. Um, and I don't think I was ever really concentrating it on, on it during that time. But then when my partner and I decided to start trying and we had difficulty conceiving, then there was no doubt in my mind. This was absolutely something I, I knew I always wanted. And we were willing to go through um, the journey of, of trying to conceive with help. Yeah, it's so funny. I always think that, you know, like for so many of us, you spend your 20s trying not to get pregnant so that you can do all the other things. And then when you do want to become pregnant, then that and it's hard. And then you think, well, wait a minute. <laughs> like It's like it's very hard for your brain to make that switch of like, okay, now I'm ready for this. Now I'm like, my body is failing me. You know, it's, it's very tricky. Absolutely. Absolutely. And when it's two bodies involved and we have to really figure out where the issues are coming from, or if there's double issues, it's, it gets very complex. Mm -hmm. And then that's an added layer on the relationship. Yeah. That's very hard. Absolutely. At what age of your Mm -hmm. child do you think you really start parenting? Okay. I was, I was thinking about this. Um, I think for the first year I was merely surviving, merely surviving. Um, and it challenged a lot of my core beliefs about what it means to need help or ask for help, or they say it takes a village, but do we have access to that? Right. Um, but after my son's first birthday, when I recognized he could start communicating back with me through sign language, then I was like, like, oh, okay, I know I'm parenting. Like I'm communicating with this kid. I'm assessing his needs. He's telling me what he needs in his own little way. And this feels like a didactic, you know, back, back and forth relationship in a different way that I really need to be on point and be um, more attuned to not only his physical needs, but like his emotional needs as well. Right. So there's several layers to it. Did the pandemic change anything about how you parented because I'm looking at the age of your child and just about the time you were kind of like getting your stride, it looks like that's kind of when that hit. Yes. So because we were always IVF people, um, the way it worked with my reproductive endocrinologist was if you contracted IV, uh, if you contracted COVID, no matter what, where you were in your in your cycle of stimulate stimulating medications and all these things, your cycle would be canceled. So my partner and I were very, very, very careful because we didn't want to have six weeks of injections down the drain, you know, because we contracted COVID. Um, that being said, my son was about 14 months when the lockdown happened. And so um, we tried to do no screens until he was three years old. Um, so for a long time, it was, trying to entertain this kid in the house without company. Um, Thank God for my parents and my in-laws, they would come to the front window of our house and they'd stand in the front yard and they'd wave and we'd have visits through the glass. Um, But I'm actually very, very grateful that he wasn't older during that time because um, for older children who have um, independence and autonomy, right? Like they can go flip on the TV by themselves. So um, we had a little bit more control over him, um, but eventually we did contract COVID uh, right around Christmas, and it was about a month before his um, 
third birthday. And we ended up finding out the night we, we arrived on our vacation. So in Florida, so we ended up sitting in a little 900 square foot condo for two weeks watching Encanto over and over. So that was his foray into screens. (laughs) But again, I'm really grateful that he was that young at that point in time, because I think screens would have been a much, much bigger battle for us had it not been um, the age that he was. Yeah, it's really interesting. My son is 11. And I mean, all of school was online and virtual. And it's taken a really, really long time to almost like break that addiction, where it's like, you know, he's, he always asks, he doesn't just go on. But you know, and we're not, I mean, we're very reasonable, I, I think about, you know, about it, to a, to a certain extent, but it's also like, there, it's very rare, you have a day where that's just kind of all you get to do when you just get to veg. Um, But that being said, yeah. like he's the only kid he knows that doesn't have a phone um, in sixth grade because we're still trying to be like, you know, there's already enough happening. And when he did go back to school, though, I distinctly remember it literally having to like break the cycle of this was the expectation that I'm going to be doing this all day, every day. And yeah, it, it was one of those things that, um, you know, it was fortunate that obviously they could be in school, right? And like this generation knows how to function outside of a building. So those are great things. But at the same time, I don't know how much, you know, I guess the jury's out and we'll just see how much the Mm -hmm. online learning actually contributed to more loneliness and isolation, especially for the children that were more extroverted or my son says he's an omnivert, but you know what I mean? Kids that needed physical juice as opposed to just the computer. Absolutely. And we know with screens, we, when we get those pings of dopamine, like it's really hard to back away from that. So trying to remind myself, how does my kid get dopamine? That's not a screen. And what, what new novel toy can I rotate in or out that he can, you know, have fun with that I can distract him from how much he loves screens. Right, right. And it's interesting, because, you know, I used to work in a substance abuse facility. And at the time, it was kind of like at the beginning of the rise of the heroin crisis. And speaking of dopamine, like, they're really, Mm. truly, just the weirdest parallels that you can see. And it's just an awful lot to think about. And it's hard, because, you know, people are busy, and you don't really get a chance to spend the time really thinking about it, you know, and you do know, eventually, like, yes, it's going to help you babysit. And you know what, it's okay. Like, everybody was surviving, and everybody is surviving, you know, but at the same time, it's like, if we're supposed to be training them for adulting, you know, then do, do they know how to actually still have conversation with other people? Absolutely. And to what extent do we have to course correct? And that takes a lot of time and intention. Yep. And the willingness of all parties to be on the same page to do it all. Absolutely. What is your most embarrassing parenting moment? Ooh, okay. I was actually leaving a mother baby breastfeeding support group. And (laughs) it was the winter. And my son experienced like three back to back blowouts of his clothes and diapers and everything. And I didn't have any more than three pairs of clothes. And I was like, what am I going to do? How am I going to get this kid home? 
in 20 degrees without any clean clothes. And I don't actually remember what I did. Maybe I blacked out. I have no idea. <laughs> like repressed that memory. But I was like so embarrassed. Like, what do I do now? And I, I, I don't, I think it's ridiculous to tell parents to bring more than three changes of clothes with them. But that's what I needed to have done. And I didn't do it. So uh, that was embarrassing. Yeah. I don't know if I borrowed something from another mom or what, but that's when you're like, you're desperate and you're just, you got to ask for help. Well, and you know, it is unreasonable to bring more than three pairs because the problem is, is they grow so fast. So then you got to keep on making sure you have three yes. sets of clothes that actually fit. <laughs> I would have taken two small clothes at that, at that point in time, but you're absolutely right. If you had friendships when your children were babies, how important are those to you now? And do you still keep in touch? My journey to conceive was the the longitude of it was so much longer than that of my friends. So we had, um, you know, we, we had a, a different experience. And so I needed to seek support elsewhere. So I went to Resolve Infertility Support Group and I met a lot of women and their partners who really wanted to be parents. And thank goodness, a lot of us did become parents around the same time. And some of us are on our, onto our second or third children. So I've stayed very close with those moms because, and, and their partners also, because they know what it's like to kind of be in that, in that waiting time that seems impossible when you have to show up for your friends and, and be social and, and exchange niceties and be happy for other people in their, in their progress and in their successes um, while tolerating the distress of your own significant and profound pain. So I really, really still value those friendships. Yeah, that is, that is a really, really rough road because I mean, you know, I had my own struggles too. And I remember like watching children like grow up and having first birthdays on Facebook and it was like, you were still starting over and yeah, like you, you try to be excited for people and you know, you're, you're doing your best, but it always reminds you, you know, and I would have like a negative test and then have to go to work for 12 hours as a postpartum nurse and somehow just kind of like wall that off and just do my job and still like, just be like, well, at least I still get to hold babies. Um, but you know, it's, it's sure. tricky. So the idea of having a group of other parents to share that with just sounds extremely reassuring because at least you're not alone. Yes. It's been wonderful. What do you see as the biggest trend in parenting right now? I think the biggest trend right now is talking about consent and body boundaries. Um, and it's something that comes up in my house all the time because my little guy likes to rough house and I'm like, stay away from my tummy. Don't elbow me there. Don't, you know, um, ask permission if you want to jump off the couch toward me. Um, and we do the same for him, right? Like the idea of tickling a kid till they can't breathe um, is traditionally adorable and um, currently kind of torturous. So helping him develop the language to, to hold the boundary, to set the boundary, um, to be able to prioritize his own feelings of comfort and body integrity over that of his even very close family members, I think is super important. Um, and, you know, when he's playing with friends, like he can't just go up and hug him, he has to ask. So both giving and receiving consent, I think is super important. Yeah, that's a great point, too, because I know a lot of people try to tell family members like, you know, he's not required or she is not required to hug you or do the things or come sit on your lap or do the things that you want. And that's a really hard conversation to have because typically you're going up against people who maybe you see as an authority, but you have to do it as a parent. 
Absolutely. We usually give a choice. Do you want to kiss? Do you want to hug? Do you want a high five? Do you want a fist bump? Do you want to wave? What do you want to do? We have to say goodbye somehow. Um, and then he's able to, you know, make a choice. But so as we train the child, we train the grandparents and all the other people, right? And it is a weird middle ground to be in because you want to advocate for your kid. And for our final question, what is your biggest parenting advice to share with new parents? Ooh, definitely ask for help and receive help. Um, I think with new parents, the expectation is family members come over and they get to hold the baby. Um, but that doesn't really help that much if you're recovering for a C from a C-section or if you're in pain or if you're constantly taking the, back, the baby back to breastfeed or to bottle feed. I think we have to get really comfortable with um, when people offer to help, we give them the ancillary tasks that, that they can do that are not as fun. And they might not like that, but if they really want to help and if we're working toward authentic relationships, being honest in that way and really being vulnerable about what we need um, is super important. Can you throw a load of laundry in? Could you unload my dishwasher? Could you cut the grass for me? Could you shovel the front sidewalk? Um, nobody likes to ask for those things, but we all need them. And so uh, because we live in a society where it takes a village, but we don't have a village, this is the, at the very least we can do to advocate for what a village might do for us um, if we have one at our disposal. Yeah, I totally agree. I try to tell people to, you know, like, if somebody says, can I come over It'd be like, you know, yes, that would be great. You know, so-and-so would love to meet you. And I also could use your help with the garbage or the recycling, like the stuff that is just like, or I could use your help with dishes. And then like that expectations already set. And so once they're in person, first of all, the sleep deprived person doesn't need to remember to ask, but also like that person doesn't also feel like put upon you know, because that expectation's already been set out there. Um, and it's a good way to, like you said, just practice asking for help. Absolutely. I love that tactic. Can I borrow that and use it with my clients? Oh, of course. <laughs> use it with everybody. I also <laughs> yes. I also tell people to make like a list of food <laughs> that they love in their phone. And then if somebody says, do you need anything? Be like, yes, I would love for you to pick me up X and Y thing from Chipotle. <laughs> You know, now this is yes. me being selfish. I really need, I need three boxes of cinnamon toast crunch. Exactly. I really need people to eat. So I'm just like, okay, can you just do this? Well, we are out of time. <laughs> thank you so much for joining us for episode 24 of Chicagoland Parenting Stories. And thank you to our guest, Gillian Taylor, owner of Citrine and Indigo Counseling and Wellness. Thank you so much, Gillian. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. <laughs>